Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. In our last episode about Gary Hustwitz Rams documentary, I had mentioned that I, I spotted what looked like uh, Thonet's chair number 14 in Dieter Rams's kitchen. I wasn't digging for it, but I was just curiously looking over some things about Dieter Rams uh, in the, the time that has passed since then, and coincidentally, uh, happened to come across the fact that the chairs in his kitchen are indeed made by Thonet, and they are not the number 14s, as I had thought that they were. In, in having seen them there, they're actually an evolution on their chair number 14, is the Thone chair number 214. If anyone out there desires to outfit their kitchen like Dieter Rams, that's a, those are the chairs you want. When we were talking about the movie, we had mentioned uh, the things that he hadn't designed in his environment, and uh, these chairs did come up. And I, I wasn't familiar with these chairs, although now that I've seen them, I know exactly what it is that you were talking about. I don't find these chairs particularly appealing. I've sat in a few of them or some kind of knockoff of these chairs over the years, and, and I don't find these particularly comfortable, but the uh, the look of them is nice. Uh, so if you're, you know, in my case, if I was looking for something that I liked the look of but wasn't interested in sitting in, I might go for them, but I don't think I would add these to my collection. I have never sat in one of these chairs, so I can't comment on that. I'd see this more as a perhaps an intellectual exercise uh, in that they are a very form follows function design mm. made very simply and really they are well at least the the predecessors to the, the two fourteens the fourteens were the the first of the kind they were sort of brought about or launched the the era that Dieter Rams has effectively become the 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 grand master of I personally prefer to to sit in one of you know human scales chairs that sort of naturally conform to my my body as i move around that's my my chair of, of choice when working at the the bench in my office i'm using a herman miller aeron chair i've found that that uh, over the years has given me the best support for my back and hips which has then given my neck good support uh, when i started working from home when i was in the it industry i ended up buying one of these chairs and they look and sound expensive when you first uh, look into them but this one I've had now for going on 15 or 16 years, and it's still in great shape, still gives me perfect support, and uh, I don't think I would go back to anything else. Uh, the only thing I might do, I've considered getting another one for the um, the studio, and the only thing I might do is remove the arms from that one. Uh, I, I tend to prefer the arms when I'm working on my computer, but if I was working in a shop, I would want to get those out of the way because they would certainly become annoying pretty quickly but um yeah i i need something with a little bit more uh lumbar support and and uh back support than uh, what something like this provides and the, the human scale freedom is the the chair that i have in my my workshop at home it's uh at work we also use herman miller's as well so there i can i can vouch vouch for herman miller there's good good quality chair very comfortable and the one i have is actually quite old it's got to be at least 20, 25 years old, and uh, still does its job well. I'm sure there's some ergonomics expert out there cringing about the, the seat padding perhaps being not quite up to what it should be after that many years, but the fact that it is that old and is still as comfortable as it is to work in all day uh, is a testament to the, the build quality. And I, I can't say enough about the build quality of the, the human scale freedom chair. It's a just phenomenal chair. I'm really, really pleased with it. I've never sat in one of these. I'm not sure what, what I would think of them, but they look like they would be good. Uh, the the one thing that I do like about the Aerons is the mesh fabric for the seat and back. That is something that over the years I've found has made a big difference uh, in terms of comfort because I'm not sweating because of where I'm sitting or where I'm resting my back in the chair. I know other chairs that I've had uh, over the years with uh, any kind of foam I, I tend to find that, uh, especially in the summers around here, that I get to sort of sweat into the foam a lot, and I, I'm not particularly fond of that. So 
I, I do find the mesh is a little bit more comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, neither here nor there for me. I, I sat in an Aeron for a good stint while I was at Rolex Canada. Their entire workshop, uh, at least at the time that I was there, was outfitted with the Aeron chairs for every watchmaker. And in that vein of, of, of less being better in terms of the mesh fabric versus, versus not, uh, depending on where someone lands on that, uh, something we didn't get around to when you and Rich and I were talking about Dieter Ram's 10 principles is that to Ram's credit, he did distill those 10 principles into something much simpler, and that being the saying less but better. Yeah, the I think a lot of people end up sort of changing that into less is more, which I don't necessarily agree with. Uh, but less is better in some cases, I think, works. But again, it's very easy to sort of go too far with that. Um, so again, this goes back to my ideological comments about him. I think that sometimes going a little bit too deep into this is a problem as well. And just like just like anything, if you try going to an extreme of something, it's not necessarily to your benefit all the time. There are always going to be cases where the extreme is going to be fine and it's going to be appropriate for what you're doing. But I think that trying to hit the extreme of this is not always going to be to your benefit as a designer. There's an important distinction that I think needs to, to be made here and that Rams didn't say uh, less is better. Uh, his exact phrasing translated to English was, was less comma, but better, uh, which I right. believe originally he, he phrased as Vinegar Abebesa in German. And he actually has a, a book that that he wrote uh, a couple of years ago that covers this topic in his own words. Um, and I, I think that distinction is important. And I think it does do a very good job of distilling these 10 principles down into something that is far more succinct and in itself is an example of what Rams is striving for in, in less being better. The less is more phrasing uh, actually predates Rams's phrase. And I, I believe Rams is essentially playing off the, the less is more phrasing that uh, pretty certain was uh, either Peter Behrens or Mies van der Rohe. Uh, who first coined that particular phrasing. And then there's uh, another de- designer uh, who, who played off it in the, the complete opposite end of the spectrum and uh, put it as less is bore. I can't remember who that was off the top of my head, but uh, we'll, we'll link to it in the, the show notes. I'll dig that up. I think the the quote that I've heard, and I know it's been attributed to Einstein, but I don't know that there's any actual way of verifying that it was it was him was the uh, the comment about everything should be made as simple as possible but not simpler and i think that in design there's something there's probably a correlation in design to that idea where you know you want to try and reduce the design down as much as you can but not past the point where that reduction then becomes a problem. And I think one of the problems that we've seen from people who slavishly follow Dieter's principles is that they continue to reduce the design as much as possible, but go too far. They don't, they don't understand when to stop. There's always a problem, again, with, with people who take it to an extreme. And I think if they sort of combine Dieter's thoughts with this quote about making things as simple as possible but not simpler designers may be better served by sort of combining the two ideas mm-hmm. there's absolutely some balance to be had there and uh i'm feeling the the burn from this uh, a little bit with my macbook pro at, at the moment uh another uh quote from Rams is that indifference towards people and the reality in which they live is actually the one and only cardinal sin in design. And um, these these freaking 
USB-C ports would be the death of me. They, they've caused more angst and, and frustration and unnecessarily elevated levels of, of cortisol, which is your stress hormone, uh, in my life than, than I care to admit. And it all has to do with charging. And uh, the thing that frustrates me about this is that like everything that has gone wrong in these respects for me with USB-C and charging my laptop are solved problems. Apple fixed this more than a decade ago with MagSafe, and it just totally blew it all out of the water. Anyway, the reason I'm, I'm sounding perhaps a little bit vexed is because I, I now have a non-functioning USB-C port on, on my laptop, uh, frustratingly so, because my laptop didn't charge overnight one evening, and even though I had it plugged in, because there's no charging indicator. I did not know that it was not fully seated as best I could tell it it was fully seated so the next day when I went to use my laptop and found that it needed to be charged I had to plug it in somewhere so I plugged it in started working away and there was some commotion around me and my heart started to race as I thought about somebody walking by and tripping over my cable as my laptop was plugged into the wall so I very consciously very purposefully unplugged my laptop got up, went over to the other side of the room, plugged it all back in, sat down, started working again, and I kid you not, not more than 30 seconds later, someone ran by and <laughs> kicked my cable, tore the laptop across the table, and did not rip the cord out of the laptop. Thankfully, the laptop stayed on the table, but that particular port is now fried. Doesn't work for data transfer, does not work for charging nothing and that too has now burned me a few times because i go to plug it in think it's going to charge and then i'm like oh wait that that port's no good anyway i'm <sighs> see it's funny because i i have the exact opposite experience i i have a couple of macbook pros that have uh that have been sitting around for you know various generations for a few years now and i hated the magsafe because I, I had so many problems with that thing not charging properly. Uh, I found that the magnets on them weren't, weren't quite strong enough. I, I would regularly find my MacBook without a charge on it. And so for me, I, I hated the, Mac, the MagSafe. Now, I understand it had the benefit of saving a number of people's laptops from getting ripped off of tables and whatnot in similar situations to what you're talking about. While I'm not a huge fan of the design of the USB-C, I think, it, honestly, I think the Lightning... The lightning adapter that Apple uses is a much better design than the USB-C one. Obviously, there's differences in terms of the data transfer rates and power and things like that. But just from a, a physical design of a port, I think that the lightning port is significantly better designed than USB-C. And I think that would, if, they, if the USB-C port had been designed closer to how lightning has been designed, I think it would be a more reliable connection and people would have uh, fewer problems with it. But I, I know in my case, I've had very, very few problems with my USB-C ports in terms of charging and data transfers and stuff like that. And frankly, I've, I've moved everything now over to USB-C in terms of cables. I don't, I'm not a big fan of, of anything that's, that's not uh, a USB-C driven device now. Cause it's, uh, you know, I've got a whole pile of cables now that work properly for USB-C and, much bigger fan of those. Yeah, I moved entirely over to, to USB-C within weeks of picking up my laptop. So I avoided the whole dongle town mess. I mean, I was a little disgruntled that I had to shell out, you know, a couple hundred dollars on new cables and whatnot on top of the already fairly, almost unnecessarily more expensive uh, price on on the new MacBooks, but I was I was in need of a new laptop when uh, they were announced. So I, it was due time for me to get one, so I I, I picked it up and, and begrudgingly purchased all the the new cables and whatnot. But it's really just the the charging at this point that mm. that gets me because these were at least for me they were solved problems. I never had any issues with with MagSafe, and uh, I do appreciate the the reliability and simple peace of mind that MagSafe brought. Well, a charging indicator actually would have probably prevented this whole situation from, from transpiring and unfolding. But the reality is there are 
people all over the world that are trying to charge these things in situations where the cable can very easily be be tripped over. Hmm. Yeah, they well there are there are USB C cables out there with charging indicators on them. So that is a thing that you can find. Uh the other the other reason why I'm not sad to see the uh death of the dedicated charging port is that I don't always need to charge my device and it's nice to have a port that can do both. It can do both data and charging and I don't have a single purpose port on the side of my device which isn't always being used or in this case can be used for double duty. So I have a single cable that goes into my MacBook when I'm sitting at my desk and it handles charging, it handles sending data to my monitors as well as my my Ethernet adapter, all that stuff. So I'm a fan of having multi-purpose ports like this where I can do the uh, the charging. This is the same reason why I, I'm not sad to see things like the SD card slots go out of these devices and whatnot. I very rarely need an SD card slot. And frankly, at this point, everybody I know who's doing professional work is no longer using SD cards because they're not fast enough. You know, we're all using SSDs and uh, CFast cards. So I'm not particularly sad to see um, ports disappear when they are limiting. Uh, You know, something like a USB-C port is more flexible and I can then add the, um, you know, the type of adapter or device that I need to uh, to be able to get to the things that I need to get to. So, yeah, I'm um, I'm happy to pay for upgrades and cables and whatnot just because I I know that I'm getting faster data rates. I'm getting faster charging rates. I'm getting all of the advantages that the latest uh, ports come with. So, yeah, I I wasn't too sad to have to shell out for USB-C cables and whatnot just because it's they've now become useful for other things all of my uh you know my my gimbal charges off of a USB-C port my you know my GoPro does uh, my camera has USB-C on it like all of that stuff is is now all USB-C driven and it, it makes my life a little bit easier yeah another upside i do appreciate from the the charging angles you can charge from either side of the lap sometimes it is more convenient to to charge from the left than the right or vice versa and i i do appreciate that now for the charging indicators that the the moshi one that you're referring to because i had looked into them a few years back and I, I wasn't confident in the power throughput of any of them to be able to adequately handle charging a macbook pro yeah I've, i haven't tried them i i haven't bothered with them uh, in my case my cable that i use is actually going into an external gpu and they can't handle the data rates that the eGPU needs the few people I've heard of who've used them seem to be doing okay with them. Uh, I I don't know how reliable they are, but uh, there there are options out there. So do you happen to know which cable this is? is? It the Moshi? Oh, I don't remember which one it was that I saw. I do know that I've seen a few people try and make MagSafe USB C ports to go on the side of the MacBooks. Every single one of those is absolutely miserable. I've tried two or three of them now, and none of them are good. And the reviews now of all of them are miserable. Uh, so I do know that there are people who've tried to take over that uh, market and create uh, external MagSafe sort of conversions for USB-C, and they're all horrible. Uh, don't bother with getting any of them. They're, none of them are worth it. Yeah, it's just a terrible, terrible hacky solution. I'm not not a fan of those. Uh, I guess we'll just have to wait for that next iteration or maybe several iterations from now of, of USB for it to have its own magnetic coupling, just standard out of the box. I can use some sort of crazy polymagnet that super strong when you get close to it and then uh, very quickly ramps down the further you get from it. Yeah, I was going to say, we might uh, maybe we can get inductive charging up to the speed that's required for uh, for charging one of these things. Although these do take a fair bit of juice, so I'm not sure that inductive charging is going to be a solution anytime soon. So you're just after the the passive Tesla level, like not Tesla's in the car, but Tesla's in Nikola. Yeah. Tesla over the air charging from one giant probe somewhere in the middle of the, the country. Now, another thing I think was worth mentioning perhaps is I, I can see why 
USB-C is engineered the way it is versus lighting. And I do think there are some benefits to USB-C in that the, the springs are in the, the plug. So if the springs start to go and you're getting a sloppy connection, then you don't have to replace the, the device or get the right. device serviced. Um, it's just a, a new cable that you need. So that's, a, a I would say, an area where USB-C does have a, a leg up over the lightning connector. And then another one too, which I guess realistically could be a problem with USB-C as well, but I haven't seen it become a problem is uh, shorting across the contacts, which is something I have seen pop up with the lightning cables. Yeah, we'll see. The big thing that I like about it is the power, the increased power that you can handle over it, as well as the data rates that you can handle over it. That's a that's a huge improvement. As long as you're certain the cable can actually handle it, yeah. The other the other issue that you run into is that USB C and Thunderbolt three are two entirely different protocols and need different cables, yet have the exact same port. So in my case, my eGPU is actually a Thunderbolt three connector, and you cannot use a USB C cable on it. Unfortunately, there is nothing to distinguish a USB C cable from a Thunderbolt three cable. So it is if you don't know what it is that you're looking for, uh, it is very easy to uh, to get the wrong cable. In fact, I think uh, CGP Gray had a whole rant about this on an episode of Cortex a while back, where he when he first got his eGPU, trying to find a cable that would work, and and uh, he ordered 300 cables or whatever, and and ended up having to use the original cable that shipped with it because it he just couldn't find another cable that would work properly. And then realized later on that it was a Thunderbolt 3 cable that he needed, and that's not what he was getting. And there are length limitations, too, with the, the Thunderbolt 3. In order to get the full throughput, you yes. have to have a particular length because your your transfer speed and, and power fall off the longer the cable gets. And it's actually a remarkably short mm-hmm. length. Like the, the tolerance there is tight. And that's a problem for all cables. Uh, most people just don't realize it because the throughput rates are are slow enough that they don't really know. Um, so people have had USB, you know, regular USB-A cables that are too long for years and just don't really realize it because USB-A was so miserably slow that they never really noticed. Or you get like a a lightning cable that's 20 feet long or whatever and you don't realize that your phone or your iPad isn't charging fast enough and it's because of the length of that cable. It just can't handle the power over that length. Uh, with Thunderbolt 3, the protocol is designed in such a way that if it can't handle the data rates, it just shuts down. It just doesn't let you do it. It's a little bit better from that point of view because it, it just fails instead of sort of not working, uh, which isn't really a great solution for things. Yeah, if you're if you're going to use Thunderbolt 3 like on something like an eGPU, you need to make sure that you've got the right cable and that it's not too long. There's a notable gray area, though, too, where it will try and reduce, say, the frame rate in order to still get the, the signal through. It's not very much like you're talking inches, not feet kind of thing. Oh, yeah, in terms... but like on the, well, two two feet or so, come on. Uh, No, a two-foot Thunderbolt 3 cable wouldn't work with this eGPU at all. Like, it it would just shut down. It would, you, you wouldn't get it. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't get anything out of it. Wait, so a two foot cable is not going to work with your eGPU? How just yeah. how short is the cable that shipped with your eGPU? Maybe sixteen inches. Wow. So I I've not used an eGPU. Is it powering your your laptop as well? You said. Right. So in this case, it's providing, I want to say, ninety watts of power as well as whatever the full Thunderbolt three spec is for data. So in this case, it's powering a 5k display a 4k display plus gig ethernet and a couple of other things and it can power all of that stuff and provide data rates like max data rates for all of that stuff without an issue so just don't just hand wavily say a couple of other things it's impressive that it's handling all this and then some (laughs) so are are you able to share what a couple of these other things are that are also being run through this single port my usb interface for my mic a couple of hard drives. Yeah, that's the big stuff. But yeah, it, it's handling uh, it's handling a fair bit of data over that port. And that's the thing is that over a short cable length like that, over you know whatever it is, like a 16-inch cable length, 
Thunderbolt 3 max data rates are something like 40 gigabits per second. So when you start to do the math in terms of what is all going across that port, um, there's you know it can handle that quite easily in terms of the amount of data that's going across there. So it's pretty good. And um, my experience so far with the eGPU has been excellent. Uh, I'm doing some 4K editing these days as well as rendering as well as the audio work that uh, that we do for this podcast in terms of doing audio processing, things like that, uh, post-processing. Not the actual editing, but the uh, cleanup of the audio and whatnot. And uh, this eGPU has definitely made a significant difference on this MacBook Pro in terms of render times and uh, the ability to keep up with frame rates in footage and whatnot. So yeah, it's it's made a big difference, and it's uh, it's impressive the amount of data that can be pushed across that cable. So you're living the life of a, a USB-C unicorn. So I, I can see why, why you're happy. <laughs> so how are your plans for the summer shaping up? Oh, it's, uh, things become a lot busier all of a sudden. And uh, I'm, it turns out that I'm going to be doing a fair bit more traveling than I had uh, anticipated. Uh, I just uh, actually, as a slight side note, I just got my British passport, which it turns out is going to be useful for me, along with going over to the UK in uh, the end of April and beginning of May for another BHI course. Uh, I've been invited by the Goldsmiths Company to give a talk on Yellow at their first Congress. Uh, They've decided to create a symposium that is uh, similar in structure to the Santa Fe Symposium. In fact, I believe Eddie Bell, who founded the Santa Fe Symposium, was uh, one of the consultants with the Goldsmiths Company in terms of how they set it up and and discussing that. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm going to be giving that talk. That's the middle of July, I believe, and that's at uh, Goldsmiths Hall in London. So, if you happen to be in the UK or in Europe, and you're interested at all in the jewelry world, uh, there are going to be two days of talks on various subjects. I think a lot of it's geared towards materials. Uh, however, there are going to be a lot of uh, a lot of different things there. I haven't seen a full list of who's speaking, but I know from some of the people that uh, that I speak with who've been invited, there's certainly going to be some interesting talks and uh, should be worthwhile. But, uh, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a, a good Congress, I think. And a uh, few, few interesting things, I think, are going to come out of that in terms of um, behind-the-scenes tours. So, after that uh, trip, we'll have to have a little chat about it because I think there's going to be a few uh, few fascinating sort of behind-the-scenes tours that I get to go on. So is this talk going to be a, a remix of any of your previous presentations on Niello? Or is it going to be wholly new material? No, this is this is going to be a bit of a remix, um, partly because it is, partly because of the short time frame I have to write this. I, I have a month, well, had a month to be able to write this paper. Uh, I think I now have three weeks to write the paper, so I've probably got to get off my butt and do that. Because it's a mostly new audience, and in fact, I think the audience that's seen my talks before on Niello are mostly other speakers. So the people that are in attendance will not have necessarily seen my talks on Niello in the past. So I'm going to combine the two talks I've given at the Santa Fe Symposium and sort of re-gear some of the the discussion from the first one. I, I spent a lot of time in the first paper talking about historical techniques for making Niello. I, I'm going to cut down on a little bit of that, uh, but include the history uh, and its use uh, sort of in, in the past that I t- discussed in the first paper, include that as well as the focus on the modern Niello that I've been making using tin instead of lead. And I'll be discussing that instead and uh, and talking about that. So it's going to be a, a bit of a, a remix of the two papers and uh, I think might end up being a stronger paper than either of the other two uh, just because I, I have the advantage of sort of hindsight and seeing what's in them and, and having sort of lived with those papers for a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. Are there any specific ex- or historical examples of Niello uh, that was made in, in England that you'll be bringing up? Yeah, absolutely. The most famous piece uh, with Niello in it is the Fuller brooch. And that's something that's in the British Museum. 
Now, the fuller brooch is nearly 12 centimeters in diameter, so it's a significant piece in terms of its size. And uh, it's it's hand-engraved and then has yellow inlay in the engraving. It's a beautiful piece, and uh, that's something that I'll be talking about. I'm going to be asking the Goldsmiths Company themselves. Uh, I want to try and get a hold of their curator of their collection and see if they happen to have any pieces in their collection that uh, I might be able to get a photo of and maybe some details on that I can include in my talk. Uh, so we'll have to see if I can get a hold of anything there. But uh, certainly the fuller brooch, if uh, you've never seen it, we'll include a link to it. It's a beautiful piece of work. And uh, again, probably the most famous example of Niello use, although people may not necessarily realize that it's um, that it has Niello in it. If you're familiar with, with medieval jewelry and metalwork, you've probably seen this and not necessarily realized what it is. Um, it is, as I said, it is a fairly famous piece. And my first encounter or known encounter with Niello was at the Worshipful Company of Clockmakers Guildhall Museum mm-hmm. Collection. And they have a, a number of silver pocket watch cases that are inlaid with Niello. And I, I was quite taken by a number of, of the designs and that they're impre- impressive specimens given just how old they are and, and just the craftsmanship and, and care that would have gone into making them back mm. when they were made. There's an incredible level of skill. I haven't seen a lot of pocket watches with um, with Niello on them. I've seen one or two. Uh, the sort of everyday carry item that I've seen a lot of with Niello are cigarette cases. Uh, the Russians tended to make a lot of cigarette cases that had Niello inlaid into them. They were certainly one of the, the most prolific users of Niello in sort of more recent times. Uh, by the time pocket watches become uh, a thing that people are sort of making in larger quantities, the Western jewelry world had sort of forgotten about Niello for the most part, except for a few key places and uh, parts of Russia being that exception to that rule of, of the people who had, uh, you know, who'd forgotten about it. So there's there's not a lot of uses of it in the watch world, uh, which is a bit unfortunate because I think it might actually work well on clock dials as a contrasting material for the chapter rings, for instance, in the the numbering. So it's um, it's a little unfortunate that it hasn't been used. So we'll put links to the Goldsmiths Congress in the show notes if you're at all interested. I do recommend you go. It's uh, two days spend in London, so it's a, a nice part of the world if you're not from London. There's some uh, they're right they're right in the heart of London, so there's uh, there's some great places around there to to stay and eat and visit while you're there. It's uh, it's going to be a good uh, a good symposium, I think. Good luck preparing, and uh, I look forward to hearing how the presentation actually goes. Now, speaking of interesting essays and uh, written pieces. There have been a few pieces this week that have involved the Struthers, who we've discussed in the past. I had a chance to visit them last year when I was in Birmingham. Uh, The Struthers, Craig and Rebecca, are a couple who have been working as watchmakers and watch restorers for many, many years and have been working on their own timepieces that are completely built by them and designed by them. And there were a few different pieces that came up this week that mentioned them, and uh, you included those in our our notes. Did you want to talk a little bit about those pieces? I haven't dug into the the New York Times piece yet. I've got that earmarked. I, I saw you had, had tweeted that one. The, the one in The Guardian was more of a, a photo essay with little tidbits beneath it. I thought it was a, a very charming, very well done piece that offers some interesting insights into their work and and what they do and uh, also learned through that article that they are actually occupying a building that was formerly owned by James Watt who has come up a number of times on the show uh, most prominently back in our episode on the the book The Perfectionist by Simon Winchester and uh, James Watt uh, is essentially one of the the primary figures in, in catalyzing the Industrial Revolution. And uh, you and Rich had a, a chance to see a, a couple of his engines there 
when you were at the, the Science Museum back last summer in the UK. Yeah, that building that they're in is actually quite nice. And unfortunately, the jewelry quarter in Birmingham is slowly being encroached upon by developers as they are buying up buildings and converting them into condos in anticipation of the new high-speed rail line that's going in between London and Birmingham. So unfortunately, a lot of that space is disappearing. And in fact, that's something that they discuss a fair bit in that photo essay. The the photos in it are fabulous, and there's some good uh, information in there as well. But um, it's it's unfortunate that they're being sort of the, the artists in that corridor being pushed out. It has a, a long tradition of being the center of jewelry, one of the centers of jewelry making in uh, the UK. And it's uh, really unfortunate that everybody's being pushed out of it. But that building is fabulous. And in fact, Deacon and Francis, they are uh, makers of cufflinks. They're in that building. And in fact, while I was there visiting them in September, uh, Yardo Led was in the process of moving into the into the space just above them. Uh, Yardo Led is uh, an old pen maker in the UK. They make beautiful silver pens. Uh, they, in fact, do a lot of the same kind of work that I do, uh, guilloché work and uh, drawn pens. Uh, they also do some chasing and some engraving that uh, that I don't do in mine. But they were in the process of actually moving in uh, to the shop space upstairs from the Struthers. Uh, so maybe the next time I'm in that area, I might have a chance to try and visit them as well. Uh, but uh, both of these pieces were excellent, and uh, and they're certainly worth uh, worth giving a read. And there was an interesting nod, some non-ferrous metallurgists there in the area too, in the, that piece in The Guardian. Uh, was there anything in particular in the, the New York Times piece that, that jumped out at you? The New York Times article was specifically talking about the Swiss who are in the process of seeking protection through UNESCO's Convention for Safeguarding of Intangible Cultural Heritage. And they're arguing that watchmaking is such a skill and that uh, it's worth protecting. Unfortunately, the UK is one of the countries who does not actually subscribe to this particular UNESCO convention. Uh, so unfortunately, the British are not going to be trying to preserve watchmaking through this, which is unfortunate because the British have a longer tradition of watchmaking than the Swiss do. And uh, they're certainly responsible for some of the early significant uh, improvements and uh, uh, developments in the watch industry. So uh, hopefully one day the uh, the British will figure out that they should be saving uh, watchmaking skills and even saving uh, places like the jewelry quarter in Birmingham. It would be nice if it would get some protections uh, so that there would be a place for artists to move in. Who knows, maybe one day I might actually be looking for space in the jewelry quarter, and it would be nice if there was still uh, workshop space available in that part of the world. So, um, yeah, this this article was interesting, the way that they were talking about it, and... Um, the Struthers end up showing up prominently in it, but uh, it is primarily focused on saving watchmaking as a traditional skill. Well, you've got the passport. You, you literally fit right in between the Struthers and Yardolid there. <laughs> yeah, I just need to move over there. And certainly their weather's nicer. They've they've been having a very, very lovely weather this uh, this past week, as all of my friends in the UK keep reminding me. Now, you did a little bit of traveling this weekend yourself. You ended up in Toronto, and I was sent a photo that you've uh, told me you're not going to put in the show notes of you trying on some new glasses. What uh, what exactly were these glasses that you were trying on? Yeah, I had a chance to, to try on some smart glasses made by a Canadian company, North. Uh, previously, they were Thalmic Labs. Uh, they used to make a, a Mayo armband, which is a, a gesture control armband. So it would intuit what you were doing with your, your hand by having this band around your, your forearm, and you could use it to control all manner of, of different things. And uh, myo was effectively short for your myofascia, which is this layer of, of skin that uh, wraps, basically uh, encases your entire body like a, a sausage. And there's electrical conductivity that, that flows and they're able to pick up on those signals, and if you were to make a certain gesture, you can have a, a computer or 
uh, a robot or an Internet of Things device respond to those those commands. So it's a pretty neat piece of tech, and I actually considered picking one up for a little bit, thinking that uh, I might be able to find some use for it while while at the bench. I'm always trying to find new and, and novel ways to interact with technology without actually using my my fingers and and my eyes necessarily, so that I'm free to continue to to work at my bench while controlling the digital environment around me. Uh, but they pivoted recently, so they they abandoned um, that particular product. But uh, we may see a resurgence of it yet with uh, this new field that they have branched into, uh, which is uh, not quite augmented reality, but a, a form of smart glasses that project a display in front of your eye, and they do so in a manner that is much more natural and normal looking than, say, a pair of Google glasses would be. And uh, as far as I know, the particular tech that they picked up it was pioneered by Intel in a prototype product that they teased. I think it was last year or the year before called Vault. Uh, so they purchased the the rights to this Vault technology from Intel, and they have brought a line of products to market where you can have a, a pair of glasses, either with prescription or without, that uh, has a, a small display for you to, to look through. Essentially a, a HUD for your normal, everyday vision. Yeah, this is an interesting design. I, I haven't really heard a lot about these, uh, but I think this is closer to what I'm interested in than what Google Glass was. It is a slightly more primitive HUD than I would hope to have. Uh, and I don't know what their integration is like into iOS, so I'm not sure how how good it is. It looks like from the the little bit that I've seen on their website that they're trying to recreate the wheel in a you know in many ways. I almost wish that they were using something closer to what CarPlay or Android Auto is, where they're not trying to create the interface or recreate the interface for the device, but they're using an interface that's sort of being projected from the phone that you already have you know i don't know that i need another device that's trying to learn how to give me directions when i'm already really happy with the direction system that ios has for me or notifications or whatever i i like the tech that they're using and i like where they're going with it i just hope they focus more on the device and integrating with what's already there versus trying to create their whole new interface for it. Because I, I think that's going to cause problems or it's going to be more limited, I should say, not just start to cause problems. I don't think they're so far behind now on a lot of that tech and they don't have the resources that companies like Google and Apple have. Uh, so I don't know that they're going to be able to do a better job of that. We'll see where this goes. I'm I'm kind of curious to see what happens with it. And obviously the price is a little bit beyond what I would spend right now on something that, that's sort of still in its infancy. Uh, but this is certainly going down the road of what I'm interested in. Yeah, one nice thing about if you happen to need prescription glasses is that a large part of the cost would more than likely be subsidized by an insurance provider. And I think they're, hmm. they're banking on that uh, somewhat. I also think they may potentially be banking on being some form of an aqua hire, perhaps, and maybe that's where the, the investors are going with this. Because my primary feedback for them while I was, was there, uh, trying them on and, and taking a look at things, was that they really ought to open it up and be more of a, a platform mm -hmm. rather than a product. Uh, because they, they really have hamstrung themselves by essentially fencing themselves in, fencing the product in the way that they have. Now, they do have outlets for... No, I shouldn't say outlets. They have a single vector for a, somewhat of a platform, but they're they're building on someone else's platform, and that is that this device uh, has Amazon's Alexa built into it, so you can issue voice prompts and and have it respond to you. It's not quite as extensive in terms of the those skills, though, as say a standalone Echo device might be. For instance, if you wanted to control some music playback that the speaker on the the glasses themselves it's, it's not suitable for listening to music or podcasts or, or an audiobook 
So you you can't have it pause midstream for you. You would have to use a, an alternate device for that or, or fish, uh, say, your phone out of your pocket. Whereas I, I felt it would be quite nice to actually be able to, say, scroll through a, a list of podcasts or a list of audiobooks or lists of songs there in front of you as you're walking around somewhere and be able to quickly skip through things or, you know, skip ahead a few seconds or back a few seconds if you, you happen to miss something. But that's just like one of dozens of use cases I, I thought up uh, while I had them on and was trying them out. That's uh, just simply not possible uh, at this point. Uh, it is very constrained in, in what the product can do. I mean, it is neat to, to have this display just floating in the air in front of you. And no matter where you look, it's it's there and you can very quickly dismiss it when you no longer want it to be there. And for all intents and purposes, anyone looking at you can't tell that you have a screen there in front of your eyes. They they can't see anything that you're seeing. Oh, that's nice. Depending on how the light hits, it will differ from the surrounding lens. I'm kind of curious as to why they just didn't go all in and put that right across the lens to make it a little less obvious. I'm not sure that most people would notice that. It's That's going to look more like a coating or something a like that. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or a reflection or something like that. So that's that's not uh, going to be super noticeable. And, and I noticed they've also got this... Uh, loop where you can hold it in your hand and it's got a little joystick to help control the device and i think that seems a little kludgy in terms of you know do i want to have something around my finger like that that i have to i have to wear to be able to control this if i don't want to use the voice commands because in most cases i don't want to use voice commands to control things Mm -hmm. I, i would rather be able to use my my watch or my phone to be able to control things like playback or whatever and be able to see uh, what's going on because in in a lot of cases i can for instance i can reach down and use the smart crown on my apple watch to quickly scroll through let's say a list of podcasts or whatever or a list of music but i have to look down at my watch to be able to see what they actually are it would be nice if i could use the watch as the controller and be able to see the results of what i'm doing on my glasses as i'm doing that so I think this is this is still a little primitive, as you said. It's not really a platform for people to build on. And I suspect that if they're smart, they'll turn this into an AccuHire and sell off to somebody. Hopefully it's somebody who does something interesting with it and uh, turns it into a uh, a product that can really interface well with, with the phones that are already out there and the devices that we're already carrying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this control is an area where I could see them reintroducing their gesture control armband potentially down the road if, if the company is, is still afloat. I was actually a little thrown off when uh, they, they first introduced the, the little ring to me. Uh, it was primarily because I had uh, just been sat down in this booth. So to, to have the glasses fit is actually quite uh, an experience as well and very involved, very hands-on on their part. And having been through it now, I, I'd be confident the, to be able to, to make the adjustments by myself if I were to say, buy them off the shelf, which you absolutely cannot do. You have to go through their their boutique and their, their official channels. Uh, but when you first come into the store, there are these holographic displays sort of showing what the, the glasses themselves are, are like to wear without actually putting a pair on mm-hmm. because all the pairs that they have out on display, as far as you're concerned, aren't functional. They Right are in every other respect the the glasses, but they don't actually have a, a display that you can look through. So they have these holographic displays that you can see. The whole just showroom's quite sparse. And then to be fitted, they usher you into the back, into a, a small booth, and then you've got to, to sit on this stool and you've got to raise yourself up to be able to, to see your own eyes shown back to you through a, a digital display, actually two displays, if I'm remembering correctly. And there's this series of cameras all around you. So it's a, a little bit like stepping into a bullet time room to, to film the Matrix. And they, they'll take a 3D scan of your head once your eyes are positioned properly in the frames, like your ears and, and everything all in there. So I've, I've been digitized and I'm living somewhere on North's server's and once that's been done, then they basically find a particular frame or fit that is most ideal for you. And after having gone through all of this and, and basically looked very 
intensely at my own eyes for a few seconds and seen all these lenses and, and different things and, and cameras. The young lady who was helping me offers me a loop. And so here I'm thinking about <laughs> the loop I wear all day, every day while working on watches. And I was a little bit confused as to what she was referring to. And then she opened uh, a, a drawer and uh, had a series of, of rings in it. So like going into a jewelry store, you then try the fit of, of various loops. And this is effectively a little joystick that you, you wear on your hand to control the glasses. So once you've had the the fit figured out for your face and features, and you've got your ring, then you then head out to uh, another area where you actually get to sit down and put on an active pair of glasses that they have paired to a device that's that's not your own and you can then walk through what it's like to, to actually use a pair of these focals i would compare it somewhat to the the demo loop on say an apple watch um like there's only only so much that you can actually do i mean that you can theoretically do quite a bit with alexa but you can't load any skills from amazon you can do what you could typically do with your your vanilla a package of Alexa's skills, and that was just it's quite broad. But that's about as broad as things go. From from there, all you've really got uh, is access to a, a fake calendar, uh, notifications. Uh, you've got text messages, and they have a, a dummy message that's there, and you can respond to it. And they have some canned responses you can throw out, or you can dictate uh, a response. The dictation was okay, about as good as you can expect from any of these sorts of voice assistants. But the, the one downside is if you're an iOS user, is you can't actually send those responses from your own device. Uh, so because of the way that iMessage is, is set up and the way the phone itself is set up, when you're replying to a message and someone's going to get uh, a response from you from a completely different phone number that you end up having to, to register and set up, through North that that is paired to your glasses. Whereas if you're on Android, then someone's going to get a response and it's going to look like it, it came from you. So it, if you intended to use these with an iOS device, I, I think that part of the experience uh, is still only half-baked. Uh, and that's not any fault of, of North, so that's just the way that uh, iOS is is built and designed and, and just being secure by default. Well, that yeah, that would be a, a non-starter for me. i one of the reasons why I'm in the iOS ecosystem is because of the end-to-end encryption in iMessage, and I wouldn't be interested in leaving that to use whatever system they're using, which is definitely not encrypted. And so apart from those features and a to-do list and, and things like that, all you really got is the the weather, then you can call an Uber. And I, for one, uh, very much against the, sort of the moral standards of of uber so i would never have any reason to to call it an uber but from some of the murmurings around me with some of the staff it it's actually uh very easy to accidentally call an uber so if you've set up an uber <laughs> account and you have a pair of these glasses uh, hitting that uber button will fetch you an uber uh, whether you uh, actually wanted one or not and i did not go through that whole song and dance to actually try and call an uber because it is just a demo loop but i don't know if there's an easy way to cancel that or not or whether you'd be fishing your for your phone very quickly to, to try and cancel the, the car you just summoned so i guess one of the things that you mentioned was that they've got a a phone number that you register with them does is this an lte device as well as being i guess bluetooth enabled i don't believe so i'm pretty certain it's just bluetooth and that's going to help with your your battery there for sure so that's another thing that the apple watch would have a, a leg up on i believe it relying on being tethered with your phone so i think what's happening there when you respond to a text message is that the companion app on the phone is then firing off a web request which will then fire off a text message for you using that dedicated phone number yeah that's what i would expect i i couldn't imagine putting an lte modem in this thing as well especially if they're not they don't have the advantages of a company like apple when it comes to building better lte modems and whatnot or or being able to tie into to those modems in ways that other people haven't been able to figure out so i, I as you say i imagine the the battery life on it would be pretty miserable if they had uh, lte did they give you a sense of what kind of battery life to expect out of using these they can generally expect about a day's worth out of it um i've obviously I didn't test that uh, but the 
the charging cases is quite a thing to behold, uh, which is basically the case that the the glasses would have to travel in. Um, so if you're accustomed to having a very nice slender case for your glasses, that's not going to be the case with these. The actual arms of the device don't fold in the way that the arms would on your typical pair of glasses. And I imagine that's in order to maintain the integrity of the alignment when you set up the, the glasses. It's actually quite an involved process to get everything lined up so you can actually see the projection that is being displayed. It took a few moments to get the, the nose guards literally bent into place so that I could see the crosshairs uh, effectively in the setup mode, and then you overlay the, these different colors to register the different patterns just to make sure everything's correct for how far the glasses are from your, your face and exactly where they're positioned in front of your eye. And I should mention, too, that it's only one eye uh, that you are seeing the display on, and that's on the, the right eye, which was a, a plus for you, you had mentioned, Chris. Yeah, my stereo vision is not great. Um, I got stabbed in the eye when I was a kid, thanks to my brother. And so my left eye is actually off by around 15 degrees and sort of is out, looks out to the left a little bit more than it should. And because of that, uh, things that involve stereo vision can be a bit problematic for me. Uh, so for instance, 3D movies drive me absolutely crazy. I am not a fan of, uh, of 3D movies. Um, with those glasses, I can't uh, I can't see those well. So the fact that this is a single eye is actually quite nice. That uh, that would be an advantage for me. Mm, and that's I mentioned earlier. There are two things that people might be able to pick up on as, as the fact that you're wearing these smart glasses. And the only other thing was the uh, it's a little prism that sort of juts out from the right side, and that's where the the projection system is is firing these little points of light at the the lens from and. The glasses themselves, um, you know, I just happen to be a, a smaller framed individual. So for me, it's still just a, a little too big in the, the same way that uh, I personally find wearing an Apple Watch or another smartwatch just a, a little too big for, for my own frame. So I, these aren't something I would actually consider getting for myself uh, simply because I don't, don't think I'd actually wear them. They're a little too wide for my face, just a, a touch too big. Uh, in terms of sort of the design and, and where we sit right now, it kind of registered for me that in terms of ecosystem in the future and you know, if Apple is coming out with augmented reality glasses down the road or if other companies are, the, the challenge that's carved out for them is actually quite a bit bigger uh, than I, I may have thought at, at first glance. And this is, I would compare the focals to say the, the Nokia 7650 that we referred to way back in episode two, which is kind of the, the first camera phone with a large display. It was the first hint of, of having a, a phone without a, a keyboard, even though this had a, a keyboard that would slide out from behind it. Uh, so for me, the, the focals are to whatever Apple may theoretically release down the road what that Nokia camera phone was to, to the iPhone. As just not quite there yet. It is definitely leaps and bounds better stylistically than Google Glass, but it's still in a bit of an, an uncanny valley for me. It's not quite all the way there. And Google Glass as well still has a bit of a, a leg up over these in that it had a camera in it. So that's another thing too. These aren't actually augmented reality. These are, are just a HUD over your your eye. So unlike using ARKit on an iOS device or the equivalent on an Android device, uh, you're not interacting with objects in the world. It's just painting a display over the world, which for me, I would, one use case where I would really actually find a lot of utility in for these glasses would be at the watchmaking bench. So if they came with a a slightly smaller frame and I was able to get a full day's battery out of them, I would find some way to, to mount a loop on the front. I'd use my left eye for the loop. And then uh, if they develop it as a platform, being able to tie that into a, a timing machine, I think it would be phenomenal to be able to dial in the, the timing on a watch 
and not have to look up the time machine, but be able to see the the effect of the changes that I'm making laid out right there in front of me on my my other eye, uh, because I, I keep both eyes open as I work, so I'd be able to very quickly glance back and forth and and not actually have to lift my my head up. It's a a subtle thing, but those those little little friction points add up over time. So that's a, an area where I would I would definitely love to use these, but in their their current incarnation, that's uh, simply not feasible. Well, we'll see where this goes, and hopefully the company survives and is bought by somebody who is uh, willing to use the technology in a way that's uh, interesting and innovative and a little bit more flexible than what it's uh, what it can do right now. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>